After airing the episode called Nature's Bounty with Kevin Healy on Nature Revisited, I received a number of emails from listeners inquiring about the preparation and cooking of foraged and wild foods. So I started looking around for a cookbook, a restaurant, or a chef who was familiar with a foraged cuisine. What I found was Alan Burgo's book, The Forager Chef's Book of Floral, an incredible resource full of information, history, and yes, recipes for foraged and wild foods. I asked Alan if he would join me on Nature Revisited and talk about how he became a chef and his path to the foraged and wild food cuisine on becoming the Forager Chef. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. So how are things out there? Good. They got a little chilly compared to last time. It's winter time, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking at your your website and your Instagram. I, I think this is going to make a wonderful podcast. Good. Let's start at the beginning. You say you were raised in Minnesota. Did the natural landscape there influence you growing up? And if so, how? Well, I'd definitely say that the landscape where I grew up in West Central Minnesota, right around a town called Wilmer in Grove City, uh, was where my family's farm was and still is. My dad farms corn and soy there. It influenced me. It influences me more now than it did when I was growing up. What I really took away from it was there's a lot of corn. So I would say that now I try to kind of do right by corn, by using nixtamalized corn, using heirloom varieties. Corn influenced me, but probably not in the way that uh, most people would think of when you think of things that you grew up with around you, as far as food goes. So did you spend a lot of time in the outdoors? You know, I didn't. I spent a lot of time playing inside. I would play outside once in a while. I had a treehouse, then it got a big yellow jacket nest in it. But I was really an indoor kid. I loved to play video games when I was growing up. And I really didn't start enjoying going outside until I was working in the restaurant industry in my 20s as part of just a way to get out before work and find ingredients for the restaurant I was working at. What did inspire you to become interested in food and in particular to become a chef? Well, I'd kind of always enjoyed food and it had always fascinated me. I think the first, some of the first memories of food that I have are my parents saying like, hey, we're going to the Twin Cities, which is like going to New York when we lived two hours west of it. And they would let me pick a restaurant to go to for dinner. And I would pick cheesy places, you know, Olive Garden, the Romano's Macaroni Grill. I remember being one of my favorites when I was really young. And it made me like Italian food. I always liked Italian food. When I started working in the restaurant industry, really in fast food, somewhere along the line, 
I remember getting in trouble and getting grounded, and my grandma brought me a cookbook by Lydia Bastianich. I started cooking from it while I was working at McDonald's. I started making my own pasta and trying to replicate things directly from the book. That is really where I started to kind of get obsessed with food. When did the foraging part, the wild foods, become a part of your culinary interest? I mean, as you say on your website, it started with the mushrooms. Yeah, I like to I like to say that mushrooms were my first love. So, the first time I saw a wild ingredient come into a restaurant, which is where I first learned about them, it was a mushroom, because mushrooms are probably pound for pound the most valuable uh, and the most widely sold. They're I would say they're a much bigger cash crop uh, compared to plants. So after 10 years in the restaurant industry, I had cooked just about anything that a chef could throw at me. But when when I was working with one of my chefs named Andy Lilja at a place called Il Vesco Vino, there was a retired guy who had bought himself a plane and he would fly around the country and hunt mushrooms and bring them back to Minnesota. And he would bring products to us. And these things were completely new. You know, I'd cooked mushrooms before. I, I enjoyed them but I'd never seen a 15-pound hen of the woods or chicken of the woods or chanterelles or porcini. So these things were completely new things to explore. So I was fascinated by them. And it was at that restaurant, I cleaned a chicken of the woods one day. The next day, I like to go play uh, disc golf. And I would play disc golf before work. I went out after I'd cleaned the chicken of the woods, and I saw a chicken of the woods growing on a tree while we were playing disc golf. And that was the that was the real moment when something clicked, and I understood, hey, these things are not crazy, unattainable things. Wild food, wild mushrooms are kind of all around us, and it's all about timing, finding something at the right place at the right time. And that was really the beginning. So, in your own words, how do you define and how would you describe foraging? Well, I think foraging, a lot of people think it's just like an act of going outside and getting wild food. To me, it is more of a mindset of looking for food in places that one might not expect. Go to a garden. Gardens are a great place to get wild edibles because you've disturbed the soil and that makes it good for seed germination. You know, people weed their gardens. When I go to a garden, I'm usually not harvesting vegetables. I'm usually just gathering the wild plants that come up around it. That kind of, in a nutshell, is what I would say. Just being open to seeing food outside in places that you wouldn't expect. But the act itself I mean, I think is important because there's a, a connection that, that comes with that harvesting something, bringing it to the kitchen, and eating it. You know, it's really special. So when did you take on the identity of the forager chef, and how has it changed your life? I was at, I was at a restaurant working for a very well-known chef. He's a celebrity chef named Lenny Russo at this restaurant called Heartland, where the menu changed every single day. 
we wrote the menu brand new every single day, every chef on their station, and we only used products from within about 200 miles of Minnesota. I was not in the best place in my life. I had been working. I never really wanted to work at places that paid tons of money. I wanted to cook cool stuff with really good chefs, and that is not a way to really – that's not something you do for money. It's something you do for the love of the craft. And I thought to myself, you know, Lenny is a celebrity chef. How can I differentiate myself? And I was living in the basement of my my friend's house, and I would cook him breakfast. Almost, it wasn't part of the rent, but it, it may as well have been. And he said, Alan, this food is so cool, like all the stuff that you're gathering. By now, I, I knew a bunch of mushrooms and a few different plants, and I would bring them in to put them on the menu at the restaurant. And he said, we have to make you a website. And I had no idea what that entailed. I thought we would like make a website and it would be done. And I just kind of thought of it as an electronic business card, but it needed a name. So originally it was just alanburgo.com. And I thought, you know, that doesn't really say anything to people. That doesn't really describe what I do. So I changed it after about, I don't know, seven or eight months. I liked the name Forager Chef. Yeah, I felt it was concise and to the point. And honestly, I'm really shocked that I was able to get that domain. And it does seem to describe you really well. Yeah, it does. And it's short and to the point. So talk a little bit about how the foraging part of cooking brought you closer to nature. I mean, you talk a little bit about, or you mentioned that, you know, as a, as a young kid, you spent a lot of time indoors. How has that changed? Well, it's changed a lot. I am outside during the growing season basically every day. I'm foraging like every day for something or another. What it has really done, you don't even notice it as it's happening, but my instincts really started to kick into gear. And I can know by just like looking outside, I can probably say, hey, this, this, and this are ready or say it's the fall, I know, okay, the butternuts are going to be ready first. Then after that are going to be the black walnuts. And then right in there somewhere is probably going to be hickory nuts. And I can just kind of tell instinctively what's happening in the landscape around me as far as food goes and and other things too. We all that collecting food or foraging, that process does bring one closer to nature. But when did you first realize that the cooking of those foods was just as interesting and meaningful as collecting them. That the culinary part also gave you a closer relationship, not only to the food, but to the environment they come from. Well, that was definitely when I started working with wild mushrooms and I started to see that all these mushrooms were different and the mushroom morphology is highly variable across all the different edible types that we would eat. And I saw mushrooms not as just something that you could plug and play into a recipe, but as things that are special and that could be, you know, treated. Some could be treated like meat. Uh, that all of them have different tastes, textures, smells. That they respond differently to different cooking techniques, dehydration, the pickling. There's all kinds of different possibilities that I started to realize when I started to eat individual species 
of mushrooms and then waiting for them and enjoying them throughout the year, understanding that, you know, in the Midwest, people just think about morels and then a lot of people don't know there's other mushrooms. Being able to appreciate this kind of cavalcade and progression of edible mushrooms throughout the entire year when there's not snow on the ground really made me appreciate the landscape, the timing, and the individuality of all all of the different mushrooms. But it was definitely mushrooms were the first thing I cooked where I, I started to really appreciate the environment. And, and you build up instincts with that too. When I walk into a woods that has a lot of burr oak in Minnesota, my almost like a spider sense would start to go off and I would think, oh, this is chanterelle territory or red oaks and it gets a little wet and kind of swampy. Then I would think, oh, this is yellowfoot chanterelle and black trumpet territory. And again, I would those instincts would kind of build up without me even noticing it, but they would be there, you know, kind of helping to point me in the right direction. You've written a book called The Forager's Chef Book of Flora. What inspired you to write it, and how long did it take you to collect all the recipes? Well, I was inspired to write it. I always knew that I would write a book. When my last restaurant closed, I knew closing it was really, really difficult, and something in me just said, I don't want to go back and work in a restaurant right now. It It was really, really difficult. And I just said, I'm just going to take some time to to just be a human and enjoy not being a slave to the kitchen for a while. And I had started to write a manuscript. At first, I was just going to take recipes from my archives. I had plenty of them of my style of cooking, including meat, mushrooms, and wild plants. And I quickly saw that the book was going to be way too small in scope if I did that. It was going to be too broad. So I decided to split it into a three-part series where Flora is the first one, which is kind of the vegetal portion of my life, and it'll be followed by fungi, which is the mushroom portion, and then meat afterwards. So Flora, Fauna, and Fungi, basically named after the tasting menus that I used to cook at Heartland. And the book took it took a long time. <laughs> it took a really long time. It was about three years in total. And it adds a lot of complexity when when the author does all the images, as, as I did. But it took a long time to gather the recipes, too. Eventually, I kind of got uh, a vision for really what I wanted it to be like. I started seeing things that were very similar in different cultures around the world. Because I, I had to look at different cultures other than, like, culinary culture in the United States. Because we don't really have a tradition of eating wild plants. So I started looking to cultures around the world, and there's a vibrant wild plant tradition in Italy and most of Western Europe and and all over, basically every place in the world except America is kind of how it seems to me. Kind of like the mushrooms being unique. A lot of the plants, we think, oh, leafy greens, you know, just cook them anywhere you would spinach. And that's that could be true, but it's not necessarily true. And there's lots of different specific cultural examples that I started coming across just doing armchair research and looking through my cookbook library of specific plants being called for in recipes in different cultural traditions. 
and I wanted to showcase these really specific traditions here and there throughout the book because people have cooked traditional recipes for a reason. They don't make them because they taste bad. So looking, one of the things I tell people first is to look at how different cultures use whatever plant that you're cooking with. It's going to give you a better appreciation for how the ingredient should be used. And people made it like that for a long time because it tastes good. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I really like about your book is that each recipe is accompanied by a personal note, either some history, some background on the ingredients, or a tip that, that your voice is there throughout the book. Yeah, I tried to I tried to really put my voice into it and we had to cut about twenty thousand words. I put too much in there. We had to cut about twenty thousand words. An entire chapter on fruit had to get cut. And I cut an entire chapter instead of cutting little bits and pieces from each one again so that the book would be more focused and more purposeful, more meaningful, more useful to people. It's a pretty comprehensive book uh, in the in the scope of the books on wild food that are there that are on the market. So, what do you hope people take away from it? Well, I really hope that people take away the fact that food is all around you. If you are open to, you know, understanding and appreciating and discovering different edible things around you, just being kind of primed to see them that there's a real interesting, fascinating, rewarding connection with food that you can create, and it's sustainable, it's healthy, and it's free. There's also a certain feeling of just finding something. I still get excited every time I find something new or something that I've just been looking forward to seeing after, after a growing season and having our winter come and not being able to be outside looking for things for a little while. As we know... Not everyone has access to wild plants and forage foods. So what advice might you give to someone who wants to experience some of the wonder and the mystery that you share in your book, The Book of Flora, but doesn't have access to the foods or the ingredients? Well, yeah, I, I had that in mind because the book also speaks, it speaks to a lot of people, uh, speaks to foragers, uh, it speaks to vegetarians, it also speaks to gardeners. So one thing that's important to know, like I talked before about how different cultures have wild food traditions, much more so than uh, the United States and generally speaking, Asian markets and immigrants that come to the United States often have robust uh, familial wild food traditions. And if you go to Asian markets, they often carry a lot of the different wild grains that I cook with. Watercress is a staple. Uh, the amaranth is there, and that's another really easy one to find. Purslane, I see purslane at Asian markets. I also see it in Middle Eastern markets. In Middle Eastern markets, I also see uh, wild chicory, which is kind of like a giant dandelion, but a little bit different. That's a very common one in a lot of Middle Eastern culinary traditions. Going to places that are not selling American food and what Americans expect to see on a store shelf is a really good way to kind of break out of your comfort zone a little bit. So that's one of the things I tell people first is to go to an ethnic market. 
Speaking of, of different cultures, I like the term you, you talked about in the beginning of the book about the different cultures around the world. And that in Italy, they use the term spontaneous plants. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah, it's, it's a great one. And there's, there's similarities across. It's one of my favorite parts of the book. There's similarities of that across a bunch of different cultures. I started to make notes of them when I would see them. So in Greece, for example, they have horta. And horta refers to not one wild plant, but a whole bunch of different wild plants. And in Italy, they have piante spontanee or herbe selvatiche. And it refers again, not to a single wild plant, but to a whole host of them. Then you have the same thing in Mexico, Latin America, where they have quelites, which kind of translates to like little things. And that could be, you know, all these mixes of wild plants are all different. With quelites, you might have amaranth. Purslane is common in a lot of them in North America and Europe. In Japan, you have sansai, which translates to mountain vegetables. And one of my favorite sansai is actually hostas, hosta shoots. That's, that's one people usually really like because most people know what hostas are. And they might have them growing just kind of as an ornamental plant, but you can harvest them. They'll grow back and they are just delicious too. So let's get a little serious here. How important do you think it is that in our culture, we retrieve some semblance of our original relationship with wild foods? Yeah, I think it's important I don't think that it's something that will ever be mainstream. I think it's it's important because it will it's a, it's something you can do that is the food is healthy, it's sustainable, it aligns us with how we have been eating for a very long time before the you know before the agricultural revolution when we started to consume you know more grain. And then, you know, the industrialized food revolution, if that's even a thing, like around the 50s, when everything started to be packaged and in the, in the, in the birth of convenience food, you know, we know that eating highly processed food is not really a great thing for us. I think it's a step in the right direction. You mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that you think that foraging and the culinary art of cooking wild foods is poised to explode. Why do you think that, and how do you see foraged and wild foods becoming a part of our culture? Yeah, I think I've been saying for years that it's like a, a powder keg ready to blow. I mean, I can remember pre-Facebook, the wild mushroom community was just like a few little message boards online, and then you had mycological societies, and it was still very fringe. And I mean, fast forward nine or 10 years and you have a lot of information online uh, that just exploded all kinds of people writing about foraging on, you know, on just about every continent where you could harvest wild food. And it is all over the place. And we do have, we have some people, you know, breaking into the mainstream, um, Alexis Nelson, 
Black Forager is, is a perfect example. I mean, she's been profiled in all kinds of mainstream media, which is, it's endearing, you know, and it makes it more accessible because people can see, hey, I don't have to be, you know, a scientist to go outside and find food. And she makes it fun and kind of captures the excitement that comes along with, with finding things. I think her work is just great. So I think that we're going to see a lot more wild food and people involved in the wild food community over the next few years. I think it's only going to compound and grow exponentially. And there's, you know, there's a perfect place right for it. It really fits. It fits, I think, where we, where our mentality is kind of going. People want to be outdoors. Uh, they want to go outside and camp more. I think people are, especially after all the lockdowns and stuff like that, you know, there's a, there is a noticeable jump in, in the interest of foraging and wild food. And, yeah, it's it's only going to get bigger if where we've come from and the interest that, that I've seen personally is any indication. I don't know if it's going to be mainstream, mainstream. I'd like to think it will be. So I think it's just a matter of time. Is there a particular recipe from your book that holds a special meaning for you that you would like to share? And what makes it special? Oh, yeah. The first recipe in the book, it's called Wild Green Cakes. When I made it for the Today Show this year, I think they called them weed sliders, which I do not like as much. I don't like to put the word weed on a menu. Uh, I would prefer to use a Latin name of a plant. The Wild Green Cakes... They're, they're an example of kind of the place wild that I see wild food holding in the world, which is it is free, is available all around the world. You know, most of the wild plants are invasives, at least that I eat in the, in the United States here. And the same, the same species, many of them are very, very similar ones, can be harvested around the world, leafy greens. But those plants that are that are free, that people can go out and pick, you know, throughout the growing season, are also in high demand at really really nice restaurants. So I was eating at a place by one of my favorite chefs called uh, Jacques Chibois Restaurants, the Bastide Saint Antoine in France, and he had these little spinach beignets, and they were delicious. And then in Sam Thayer's first book, he describes making these little patties out of wild greens. And I thought to myself, this is basically the same recipe, except one is by a guy who basically lives off the land and is a professional forager. And the other one is a two-star Michelin chef. So finally, I saw on the Instagram post recently that you are doing some work with distilled spirits using forage food or forage plants. Yeah, I got contacted by a distillery in Minnesota. It's called Ida Graves, and it's right around Alexandria. And we will produce about a thousand bottles a year of different things. We usually make like three different products. This is our second year doing it. I will harvest hundreds of pounds of wild ingredients. The liqueurs are sold in mostly in the Twin Cities. 
So the distribution's been a little bit difficult, but it's been a really fun project. Uh, one that we came out with this year that just dropped this week is the SAML. So it's liqueur, probably about the same ABV or alcohol by volume as vodka, but it's made from distilled honey. The honey was fermented with like 50 pounds of milkweed flowers that I harvested, linden flowers and clover blossoms. And it's a, it's a really interesting product. And basically, I just harvest stuff. I give it to Brock, who owns the distillery, and he works his magic. So it's a it's an avenue that I really, really never saw coming. You know, there's all kinds of interesting botanicals and aromas that I can harvest that may not necessarily be, you know, perfect for cooking. And how can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? My website is foragerchef.com, and I'm on Instagram at foragerchef. I'm on Facebook, too, and those are really the only platforms that I do too much on. My final question is, that, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with my audience? Well, some final thoughts. I would say that, you know, wild food is all around you. Don't be fooled by what's in the grocery store. There's so much else out there. There is an entire world of exciting things just waiting for you. I tell people, you know, maybe learn one or two plants a year. You don't have to learn everything at once. You can take baby steps and learn at your own time, learn at your own pace. But just know that there's a whole different world out there, a whole brand new world of taste textures, aromas, and flavors that can be really the icing on a perfect hike. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alan Burgo, the Forager Chef. And if you are interested in cooking forage foods, you will check out his book, The Book of Floral, and Bon Appetit. I also hope you will share Nature Revisited with your friends, your family, and colleagues. The music for this episode is Norak by Ben Cosgrove from his album, The Trouble with Wilderness. This episode was made possible by the generous contributions from David and John Lipo. And I thank you. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. <laughs>